From activism to entertainment, health to nightlife, profiles and courage to travel, and so much more. This is the Jeff Hawker Show, LGBTQ news and lifestyle conversation for the Coachella Valley region. Here's Jeff Hawker. We have got a fantastic show on tap today. Very excited about our two guests that we have on. In the first half hour, we'll have David Perry, who's the founder and CEO of David Perry and Associates and an author. He has written a new book, and we're going to tell you all about that. And then in the second half hour, we've got six-time Emmy Award winner and George Foster Peabody Award-winning TV reporter and anchor, a good friend of mine from the past, journalist Hank Plant. So let's get right to it. On the line, we've got David Perry. How are you doing today? Hey, Jeff. How are you? Ahoy. I'm I'm doing fantastic. You know, you're you're kind of a, a Californian that goes back and forth between Palm Springs and San Francisco. It, that's a great combination to have. <laughs> well, thanks. You know, I I love both cities. Uh, moved to California via San Francisco in 1986, and first came to Palm Springs in 2001. And in 2011, the short version of the story is a very very dear friend of my husband. Alfredo and mine, passed away, and we became the caregivers for his mother, who had late-term Alzheimer's. And during the last few months of her life, while we were taking care of her, we literally, in a two-month period to arrange nurses and things like that, we flew back and forth to San Francisco 10 times in less than six weeks. And every time we came back to this wonderful airport, we said, hmm, I love it. We're not going to be young forever, or young is. And the result is, five years ago, we moved full-time to Palm Springs. So our business is still fully registered in San Francisco and a lot of clients there. But our full-time home is Palm Springs, and now we've got clients here, too. Yeah, and, you know, we've known each other for a long time. We served, though, at different times on a really substantial board in San Francisco called Academy of Friends, um, doing great work for AIDS charities in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, it was a privilege to work with all of those talented people during that period of time. I got to tell you, I agree with you. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, Jeff. And, and, of course, as you know, one of the, the founders of what is now known as uh, Academy of Friends started out being called Friends of Oscar, but the Academy Awards got a little upset about using Oscar, and there was a wee bit of an almost lawsuit about that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the board chair, when I was there, in the late 80s, uh, Larry Hashbarger, who was a Macy's giant, was the person who, along with uh, Patrick Smith, created the, the Passport Fashion Show, which raised millions for AIDS uh, relief, and then came up with, of course, all the amazing Oscar night parties for Academy of Friends. He is also the founder of HSF, and now HSF Palm Springs, which I promise you is coming back. I spoke to them yesterday. You know, as a PR guy, uh, I, I have the privilege of having done one of the biggest openings in Palm Springs in 10 years, a year ago this month. And then, of course, COVID happened. And, well, we know what, it, what that caused. Boy, and it, it is truly spectacular inside. You got the help of Audrey Joseph, who is known for, you know, Club Universe, uh, Pleasure Dome and all that. Came, it now lives here in Palm Springs. And you instilled her help in getting all the lights and sound and video just perfect in that venue. Listen, and Audrey would appreciate me saying this. She is the best designing dyke I've ever met. I mean, she <laughs> is 
talented. I told her one day, I said, Audrey, I can't tell you how many uh, uh, inebriated nights I had dancing at Club Universe when she ran it. I mean, damn, that was, those were fun times, and we're lucky to have her down here now. Well, and I, I don't think I knew you yet, um, but I actually bartended for, I think, about three years at Club Universe and did most of the Pride and Folsom Street Fair events at Pleasure Dome as well. And then we did a, um, a, a, a club night in the back called Thunderdome. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it was just so great. That whole period of time was magnificent, just meeting so many incredible people. Well, I tell you, Jeff, so clearly I can, you know, blame you for what were thankfully pre-social media nights when maybe I was a little shirtless <laughs> and sloppy. Ex- exactly. <laughs> we were all young yeah, I used to, my friend Anthony Turney, God rest his soul, who was the executive director of the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, he and I would go dancing there sometimes, I believe it was on Sunday evenings, we called it Dinosaur Night because they played music that was... Uh, well, it wasn't for millennials. Well, for a different millennium. So, yeah, we, that space was magic, magic, magic. Yeah. I burned off many, many souls of sneakers on that dance floor. <laughs> now, I didn't realize you, our our career has kind of mirrored each other in some ways in that I didn't realize you had worked on Beta Breakers as well. I, I actually used, I used to produce the uh, footstock part of it over in Golden Gate Park. Wow, wow. Well, you know, it is funny. I know our paths have crossed, and we've clearly been in the same room, and probably you were making a drink for me at the Club Universe. <laughs> I mean, Pleasure Dome, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah I, I worked on Beta Breakers back when I was the communications director. That's the, actually the first communications director at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. I opened that in Yerba Buena Gardens in 93, and I remember watching Beta Breakers and helping with the public safety and public awareness campaign from the bridge that then crossed over Howard Street. And then over the years, including up until COVID, the city of San Francisco would hire us to help do public safety messaging and basically saying, hi, please don't drink too much and pee in people's front yards, that sort of thing. (laughs) I remember one time a group of us got together and we put a keg in a, uh, a wagon you know, like a little kid's wagon, and we <laughs> pulled that all along and we're drinking beer along the whole route. It, yeah. Beta Breakers is one of those crazy, amazing San Francisco events that you have to experience one time in your life. I totally agree. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize it is tied to, in a very real way, to the, the earthquake history of San Francisco because it started in 1912. And it was a way of showing San Francisco has recovered from the great earthquake and fire of 1906. So a lot of people who wear crazy costumes or, as you know, very little costumes and run during beta breakers don't realize it has a rich history of San Francisco. And, of course, we didn't have it last year and we're not going to have it this year, but I'm confident that it will be back in 2022. Now, you worked on a, a really cool event. Uh, it was called Sing Out San Francisco, and that was yeah. right about the time when everything locked down. It, it was. And I really appreciate you mentioning this, Jeff, because um, it, you know, last year I was just talking to someone this morning. They said, well, what was 2020 like for you business-wise? And I said, well, we had two-thirds less revenue, and we worked three times as hard. But I'm not complaining because, like all of us, including you, we all said, you know what, we, this is when you use your relationships and say, say, how can I help? And one of the things that we helped on that I, I think 
if I live to be 190, I'll always be proudest of was the Sing Out SF campaign. I got a call one day from Charlotte Schultz, who longtime chief of protocol for San Francisco and now the chief of protocol for the entire state of California. And she's in her late 80s with more energy than you and I put together. Did she used to have the, the last name Millard? She did. Charlotte Maillard. Maillard, yeah. Yes. Amazing woman. And she, of course, her, her husband, former Secretary of State George Schultz, just died two weeks ago. And Charlotte and I have been friends for a number of years. I've worked with her on various projects, promoting Tony Bennett Way and all kinds of stuff. And she called me in late March when we were all just kind of gobsmacked about what to do. And she said, we need to do something to not only lift morale, but also pay tribute to our frontline workers. I have this idea. And we started chatting, and I came up with the idea and the hashtag, Sing Out SF. And the idea was to get people to come outside, since we couldn't get together in person, and sing San Francisco's official ballad. Uh, I left my heart in San Francisco, and we even got Tony Bennett himself to kick it off. And it turned out to be... I, I'm getting kind of teary almost thinking about it because tens of thousands of people around the world took place. It wasn't just in San Francisco, and it was the first project I've ever worked on that was trending on Twitter. It was unbelievable. And a lot of the coverage of you know year-end 2020 stuff was about – I mean, it featured that as one of the big stories of 2020. It, it was incredible. We're and it was all pro bono. We, we didn't make any money from that. We're talking with David Perry. He's the founder and CEO of his own firm, David Perry and Associates. Um, so you have had this amazing long career doing PR and marketing. Uh, many times when people talk about their coming out experience, they talk about the trials and tribulations. I grew up in the Bay Area. I never had a coming out story. I was just gay. Did you experience any coming out or you just went leap, you know, head first and worked on all these projects. And I always say to people, it's, it was kind of a perk to be gay in San Francisco. Listen, when I first moved to San Francisco in 1986 and before I knew any better, started my own business before I got hired by other people, thankfully for a few years while I was growing up, someone said, well, I mean, you know, are you going to apply as a minority owned business? I went, I'm, gay white man in San Francisco. I'm surrounded by people I'm not discriminated against. What I learned years later, and now especially as a member of the Chamber of Commerce in San Francisco, one of the few openly gay members of the board, is that it's not about me. It's about the younger generation coming behind us, especially people in the LGBTQ community and especially the transgender community, which is woefully underemployed. We need to tell those coming out stories for them. So I'll be 60 this year. So my coming out was easier. Um, my, my coming out story was in Richmond, Virginia, a gay kid growing up, teased for being very effeminate. You know, fairy Perry was what I was called. I still shudder when I hear that phrase. And uh, my first sexual experience was my ex-pastor. One of those stories that was not about being abused. If anything, I was kind of attracted to this very handsome young priest. And years later, after he had left the priesthood, uh, he became my first experience. So all the Catholic guilt that I had kind of got expunged. And at one point, I actually wanted to become a priest. And, uh, you know, that, that, well, therein lies a lot of tales. But, you know, my coming out story was less dramatic than some. And I've, you know, since moving to California, heard just horrible stories, especially from members of our transgender community about the abuse that they have 
have suffered. So hopefully the lessons that I learned 40 years ago will help some others. Well, that's why we all work so hard, you know, from in the past and today is helping the most vulnerable in our community. And most of those are the transgender, but also youth that are, you know, they are so addicted to social media and, you know, watching TV and, and playing games. They don't really understand the interaction that we all had growing up, going to bars, you know, coming of age, which really helped us relate to, you know, our... I totally agree. You know, yeah, well, one of our clients is Lyric, the Lavender Youth Group in San Francisco, you know, an internationally respected nonprofit that works with LGBTQ youth. And I've had so many meetings and interactions with these young people who, for them, especially during COVID this last year, their interaction has been totally digital. And I think, well, you know, when I was young, yeah, we would go out to a bar or we'd go cruise, which now seems to be a lost art. But, uh, yeah, I feel for our LGBT youth. We are talking with David Perry of David Perry and Associates. His website is davidperry.com. When we come back, we'll talk all about his new book, Upon This Rock, and we'll get an update on what's going on with Asia SF Palm Springs. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. Now, here's Jeff. We've been having a trip down memory lane with David Perry of David Perry and Associates and uh, talking about some of his incredible experience. One that I wanted to ask you about before we go on to talk about your new book is you were the public relations lead with George Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. I was. I was for five years. I was uh, George's PR guy, and I don't call him George because, I mean, he, that's what he, everyone says call him. I, I've always been a sci-fi nut, and I remember when I got the gig in 2013, my husband Alfredo said, for God's sakes, don't embarrass yourself when you meet him. I'm like, no, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm just meeting a guy whose movies I've seen 75 million times. So, yeah, I worked on that project officially for six years and still am involved with the Lucas people and Skywalker properties. And we're looking very, very forward to uh, that museum opening in Los Angeles in about two years. And uh, in a few months, Build Out California, which is a gay uh, uh, service organization, nonprofit. It, it works to promote LGBTQ professionals in the real estate and construction space. And uh, I think we're going to get a little backstage tour of all that. I'm real excited about it. That sounds like fun. And I better get an invitation. I'm working on it. I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> so I'm going to read this quote. Perry has written an elegant, twisted thriller in which a gay couple investigates a mysterious suicide in a scenic Italian hill town. It's not hard to imagine that this book could, what this book could do for Orvieto, what night 
in the Garden of Good and Evil did for Savannah. And that comes from Armistead Maupin, of course, the author of Tales of the City. Yeah, that, when I got that quote from, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Jeff. Oh, no, that's amazing. And then I'll tell you my story about Armistead. Well, when I was, I, you know, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, so the big city was Washington, D.C. for me, because you could drink in, across the border in the Potomac at 18, and you couldn't in Virginia until you were 21. So I really kind of came out in D.C., and one of the places I hung out was an amazing bookstore. The name of it's escaping me at the moment, but uh, one of the people that ran it there, uh, Richard Labonte, knew that I was a young writer. And I wrote a book back in D.C. It is now still in my drawer about the AIDS epidemic. But now that I've gotten to a second epidemic, I think that will be my second novel. And when I found out that I was going to move to San Francisco, he said, you've got to call Armistead Maupin. I said, I, I can't just call Armistead Maupin. He said, sure, he's listed. So we called, I called him, and we became friends over the years. And I even have a small bit part in the first Tales of the City film that was made years ago. Not the new one, but one years ago. I rode around in a car in, uh, with uh, the guy who played the Rocketeer, Billy, what's his name? Anyway, Armistead and I stayed friends, and when I finished my novel, Upon This Rock, Mystery Set in Orvieto, Italy, I sent an advanced copy to him. And I knew that as a good friend and a good writer, if he didn't like it, he would be polite and just say, David, I can't review it. So when he called me, actually a year ago this month, and he said, I finished the book and I have your review. And he read it to me and I started to cry. It, and I would be lying if I didn't say that having Armistead Maupin give you a cover blurb like that, it certainly helped with sales. Yeah. A great man. I, I used to work with Kerry Craig. I was the associate producer for the launches of those movies at the Palace of Fine Arts. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember back then? Did you go to those I events? Do. I did. I did. Like I say, Armistead wanted his you know friends to be extras in in the uh, in the first filming, and so a bunch of us would would you know be in little extra scenes. I'm in one scene where I play, quote-unquote, an A-gay. I was in khakis, and I remember I had to take out my earring because that didn't look very <laughs> 1970s. And then the scene where they leave the bar where the uh, mouse has done has entered the wet jockey shorts contest, um, the, there's, this car pulls off with the guy. Billy, his name is escaping me. He played the Rocketeer. I'm one of the guys in the back of the car laughing wildly. Uh, and, of course, it took five hours to film that scene. It was fun. It was fun. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to watch that again. Yeah. So uh, the book can be got, you can get the book through Amazon.com. Where else can we get it? You can get everyone. I mean, my publisher, Quill Driver Books, QuillDriverBooks.com, but it's also, you can even get it at Target. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's all over the place. If you just search David Eugene Perry upon this rock, you'll find it. And it is a fiction book. It is a mystery set in Orvieto, Italy. And uh, we were hoping to do the launch there, of course, last year, but Obviously, no one's been traveling, but our hope is, Knockwood, that Alfredo and I can be back in Italy in August to do uh, a launch for it. Well, keep me posted on that because some friends of mine are going, they've rented a villa in Italy in first of September. So I can stretch my trip out a little bit. That's fine, fine. <laughs> we'll be there. You know, I'm hoping. I, I spoke to Willie Lyon the other day at uh, Gastro Pub. 
And tentatively on the books is a Sunday, May 2nd launch party here in Palm Springs. I'm hoping okay. by then we'll all be want to, you know, safe to get out and talk in person because I've done a bunch of Zooms. I've done a bunch of virtual readings, but there's nothing like sitting down and, and doing a reading and, and an actual signing. And people seem to love the book. I've got a bunch of other good reviews. And like I said, it, it is a mystery. And uh, hopefully people will read along. To find out everything that's going on in David Perry's life, go to davidperry.com. Do you have a date set yet for AJSF Palm Springs opening? Well, I just spoke to the owners yesterday, and the hope is possibly by May, maybe some stuff. Okay. But certainly by the fall, they'll be open again, and that beautiful outdoor space with Sonoran will be used as well. So you'll be the first to know. Okay, great. And we'll have you back on the show very soon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Next up is Hank Plant, the six-time Emmy Award winner and Peabody Award-winning journalist, TV anchor, and just all-around great guy. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Live from Palm Springs, the desert cities A to Z on LGBTQ. This is the Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Are you ready for the virtual Super Bloom celebrating wildflowers across the Coachella Valley? The 14th annual festival put on by the Friends of the Desert Mountains is taking place throughout the month of March. And Tammy Martin will join John McMullen this afternoon to talk about it. The John McMullen Show is live with Conversation of Your Life from 4 to 6, weekdays on iHub Radio. My next guest, uh, I'm so honored to have him on the show today. I just want to read you a little bit about his accolades. He has um, been given the George Foster Peabody Award in 1986 as part of the CBS 5's AIDS Lifeline reporting team. He's also been awarded the Pioneer Award at the GLAAD Media Awards and the James R. Harrison Award from the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. He's also a six-time Emmy Award-winning TV anchor and journalist. I would like to welcome to the show Hank Plant. How are you? Hey, Jeff. Great to be with you. I'm doing fine. Thank you. So um, tell us about your life and career you you originally came from detroit which is a, a huge market for radio and television and then landed in san francisco uh yeah. how and why did you make that transition and it really changed your life in a lot of ways i'll, I'll give you the i'll give you the very very short version of my life story jeff but <laughs> uh, yeah i grew up in detroit uh back when it was you know, it was the Silicon Valley of its day in the 19, late 50s and the 60s. Uh, people forget that. I mean, it was boomtown. And, uh, you know, I came out of that generation, Jeff, for uh, uh, the, the late 60s. And, you know, I wanted to change the world, make it a better place. I was, I thought I'd work in politics. I had been inspired by the Kennedy brothers, by Dr. King, and so many others. And so I moved to Washington, D.C., uh, which a, a lot of young kids did in those days when they got out of college. And uh, so I was applying for jobs on Capitol Hill. And uh, while I was applying, I was broke. I had to find something to do. So I was literally walking down the street in D.C. I walked past the Washington Post newspaper building and I thought, 
I wonder if I could work here for a while just to pay the rent while I'm waiting to hear from these uh, Capitol Hill jobs. And they hired me. I walked into the post. They hired me as uh, as a very low-level grunt, a copy boy job. Uh, I sorted the mail. I answered the phones. And, uh, Jeff, you remember Jimmy Olsen and Superman? Yeah. So that's the, the, he was a, he was kind of a copy boy. I mean, that's the kind of job. You help the reporters, you help the editors. Uh, and, you know, I fell in love with the news business. And uh, so I worked there for a couple of years. Then I made the transition into uh, radio in D.C. and then television first behind the scenes. And then I got a job as an on-air TV reporter and moved around the country. And then finally... Yes, in San Francisco for 25 years at the CBS station, and that was that was terrific for me. Now you have had an illustrious career. You've had a lot of accolades and awards. Tell us about your Emmy awards and and what stories really motivated you. Well, you know, uh, a couple of them were for my reporting on AIDS, as was the Peabody. It was interesting, Jeff. Uh, I was one of the first openly gay TV reporters in the country. And I really see that as a gift because there I was in San Francisco when AIDS came along and I was out, uh, I was out of the closet. And so I could really report on what was happening to my community. So it was more than just a story to me. I mean, this, these were my friends who were getting ill. And uh, so I'm, I'm really proud, pr- probably proudest of my work from AIDS way back at the beginning. Uh, well, in fact, I, let me tell your listeners. Uh, well, and I was going to say, Hank, that, you know, that was one of the things that Harvey Milk always said to make sure you come out be, so that everybody will know how many gay and lesbian people there are in the community. Yeah, yeah. It's very freeing. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Yeah. It's just very freeing, personally. Um, and uh, I want to I want to tell people uh, 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 there's a wonderful film about that era that I happen to be in a documentary. It's called Five B B is in boy, and Five B was the first AIDS ward in the nation, uh, and it was at San Francisco General. It's mostly about the nurses who were really heroes back then. I was a reporter covering it, and so they they interviewed me for the documentary. We took this uh, we, we to the Cannes Film Festival. In 2019, we got a big award at Cannes. We got a standing ovation. So it's now on Amazon Prime. So if you're on, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. And it's a really a very heartwarming story. A lot of parallels to today, what we're going through with COVID. The fact that the nurses were the heroes. Everybody's afraid of catching it. You remember those days, I think, Jeff. Oh boy, yeah, I lost most of all my friends. That was one of the things that everybody was afraid to open the Bay Area Reporter because it had a listing of all the people who had passed that week. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In fact, what there was uh, there was one week where the Bay Area Reporter, that was the gay paper in San Francisco, uh, they did not have a single obituary. And, you know, that made the CBS Evening News. The fact that there were no obits that week was huge news. Uh, but it, anyway, it was pretty bad. So you, uh, you, then, I'm sorry, I feel like I didn't answer your question, but I've won a couple Emmys for investigative reporting. Uh, one one for news writing. That was my first one. Uh, and uh, one for AIDS. 
uh, coverage and uh, I can't remember the other stands. <laughs> but it, it, first couple, it's got to be just amazing to be up on it that stage. I mean, there, it was a thrill. Yeah, there was a couple yeah. photos that when I was going through your bio and everything on um, IMDb, that you know you were just ear to ear smiles. Yeah, it was uh, the first one was at the uh, Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Uh, yeah, it was one of the great thrills of my life. Uh, well, listen, they're all terrific. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, I always say once you've won an Emmy Award, the first line of your obituary is written. <laughs> because it's going to be Hank Plant, Emmy Award winning, blah, 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 blah. You know. Hey, that's a pretty so, good byline. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So you were at KPIX in San Francisco for 25 years. Uh, yeah. You you've interviewed governors, legislators. You've you've interviewed Richard Nixon. What, what was that like? You know, uh, it was one of those out of body experiences for me. Uh, he was coming out of a hotel. He knew he was giving a speech inside, and uh, so we covered the speech. Uh, and then he, I said to my photographer, "Let's go wait by the back door, just for the heck of it." So we left. We missed the last few minutes of the speech. We waited outside. Security tried to throw us out. Uh, and I, hotel security, I said, well, we've got permission to be here, and they believe me. Uh, we waited, and he out walks the Secret Service, out walks him. I looked at my photographer to make sure that he was rolling. And we looked at the sound man to make sure that he was paying attention. I walked up to him with a stick mic in my hand. I said, Mr. President, and he stopped. He stopped, and he looked at me, and I thought, oh, my God, he's going to talk to me. And so I asked him some questions. But it was one of those moments, Jeff, where uh, I don't know if this has happened to you, where it's like my uh, my head is saying, oh, my God, is Richard Nixon really talking to me right now? <laughs> I'm the only one here. I'm the only reporter here. Uh, and so it was really quite a thrill for me. Uh, even though he was a despicable, yeah. President. But that's another story. Uh, you know, it was it was kind of before my time. I mean, I was a little kid when when he was president, but he was the only president that I've actually met. He was doing. I lived in Huntsville, Alabama, and he made an appearance mm. there. He was touring this mm. the space program there, and he actually shook my hand. But he's the only well, president that I've ever met. It's a thrill, you have to admit. It, it right? is when you meet somebody like that. It, it really is. How has your being an out journalist all these years influenced the stories that you've chosen? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I've always been given a lot of freedom because my bosses trusted me. They knew that I would always come back with an interesting piece. Uh, uh, being openly gay has made me certainly made me a better person. Uh, but it's also made me a better reporter because I, I think that it made me more open to other people's differences, uh, more respectful of diversity, uh, less quick to judge. Um, so when I see someone, I, I don't just see a, a white man or, or a, or a African-American woman. I know that there's a whole person there who I, who I should get to know. Uh, and that comes from being gay. You know, I, I just I don't jump to conclusions about people because, uh, you know, people look at me. They don't think I'm gay necessarily. And you know, they kind of dismiss, well, I'm just an old white guy. Uh, and so I, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's made me a better reporter. That's, and as far as the story choices, 
you know, th- this is my community. I mean, I have to be fair and objective in my stories, but at the same time, I have a vested interest, and I want to make sure the stories are told right. Um, one of the great things that would happen to me in the newsroom is when one of the straight reporters would do a story about gay issues or the gay community, they would come over and they would show me the script. Uh, make sure I haven't d- d- done something that's culturally insensitive or that I haven't said anything stupid. Or, or, or And I was always very flattered by that. And I thought it was smart of them to do that because you don't want to get caught saying something dumb on the air. But I, I always felt like I was making a contribution in that way also. Yeah, well, they had a great deal of respect for you. I mean, you Thanks, th- throughout your career, you you have garnered that respect, and it's because of your work ethic. Have you seen the way investigative journalism, do, do you see a big change from when you did it back in San Francisco compared to now? Yes. I mean, they slap investigative journalism on everything. Uh, I mean, I watch the network newscasts, and a reporter will say, well, we've learned that uh, President Biden has changed his stimulus package uh, and he's going to up the amount. By so-. And I hear that and I think, yeah, I know where you learned it. You read it in the New York Times like I did this morning. Uh, so so uh, investigative journalism isn't what it used to be. There's very little of it done because there have been so many cutbacks in the news business, in newspapers, and, and to a lesser degree at TV stations. Um, and so it's expensive to do. I mean, to do an investigative piece, you might have someone not on the air or not in the newspaper for days or even weeks at a time. So that gets to be very expensive to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not as good. Uh, um, but the, the news business is going through a terrible uh, retraction. It breaks my heart to see it. Yeah. I, I credit a lot of the change in probably in not a great way with all the syndication that we have now during the Reagan era when they deregulated media. Yes. You know, back then it That's used right. to be only one major corporation could own one TV, one radio, one newspaper in a major metropolitan market, and that all yes. changed. Yes, and that deregulation also got rid of the fairness doctrine. And so, uh, I mean, uh, you, Rush Limbaugh, in those, before this, could not have gone on the air and just tell lies. Uh, because, you know, the airway, they're, they're licensed. The airways belong to the people. Radio and television stations are licensed by the government. Uh, so you can't go on the air and tell lies. Well, after the Fairness Doctrine, that all went out the window. And so it, it led to the rise of what I of hate radio and now hate television. Uh, it's, it's really a shame because some industries do need to be regulated. Yeah, fully agree with that. Especially on yeah. a national level when you're influencing so many people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is strange how uh, we're, we're all in a bubble now. People on the left watching MSNBC and uh, people on the right watching Fox and some of the newer right-wing networks. Uh, and I, I just I hope people are relying on the traditional television network. I still put a lot of faith in ABC, CBS, NBC. Uh, CNN has gone for a center-left audience, so they're carving out that block. Um, I don't know how that'll change now. You know, a lot of them are beside themselves. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. Now, here's Jeff. We're in conversation with Hank Plant. And before the break, I had asked you the question, 
do you feel that you set the stage and open doors for some of the major network hosts right now, like a Rachel Maddow or Anderson Cooper? Well, uh, 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 I hope so. Uh, I know Rachel grew up in the Bay Area when I was on the air there. Uh, you know, somebody has to be first. And, and I hope that I made that kind of a contribution. I'm glad that it's not as big a deal. There are a few closeted ones out there still, uh, and that's, that's their thing. I mean, this is, coming out is not always easy, even these days. So uh, whatever people want to do, they have to do. To me, I found it very freeing, as you and I were talking about before. Uh, so I, I hope that I, that I made that kind of a contribution. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was one of the founders of the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association and uh, back in the 80s. We used to have these conventions every year, and all of us worked in the mainstream media, and we would have a lot of uh, seminars at these conventions about how to come out, how to come out in the newsroom, how to come out on television or in the newspaper if you were a newspaper reporter. And then I noticed a shift sometime in the 90s I would go to these conventions and there wasn't a single seminar about coming out. It just wasn't on people's minds. And I remember that as being a very positive shift. Uh, it, it stopped being an issue, at least at that level. Well, and there's so many LGBTQ issues in the forefront now. It's very important to have people like yourself who are investigative and experts and, and have knowledge about these different storylines. Yeah, it helps to have some institutional memory. I mean, uh, those of us who are older, uh, I mean, we remember. Um, you know, when I was promoting that film 5D that I mentioned, they flew me all over the world. And, uh, to to uh, We would show the movie at film festivals and like that, and then we would have a panel discussion afterwards. And I was always really shocked uh, at the young people in the audience, even gay and lesbian people who didn't know how bad it got under AIDS, who didn't know how bad it got for gay people uh, up until uh, really the, the 80s uh, and, and through the 80s. I mean, it, it was very, very difficult being gay. There a lot of pressures uh, on, on us as gay people. Uh, and and I, w I was kind of surprised at that. They just didn't know. They didn't have that institutional memory. Right. I'll tell you a quick personal story. A, a very close friend of mine um, succumbed to AIDS and had a whole bunch, a myriad of different complications. When he was nearing the end, his parents came to visit him in the hospital and they refused to touch him. And oh. <laughs> to this day, I choke up about it. I had, yeah. to, I had to confront his parents. And I said, if you are not willing to hold him and tell him you love him, <laughs> you should not be here because you're yeah. making it more difficult for him to go. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. the story you hear over and over and over again. And how many nurses had to be the parents for all these people. Yeah, that's what this whole film's about, Jeff. I'm telling you, you're going to love it if you see it. It's called 5B. Um, I'm, I'm really, really proud of it. Uh, the nurses were the heroes. They're the heroes today yep. in this COVID epidemic. It, it's I not mean, much that, different. You know, no, I, uh, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they risked their lives then. Nobody knew how AIDS was spread. They didn't know if they were bringing it home to their, their spouses or their kids. Uh, and just like with COVID, 
Uh, it's very, you know, COVID, of course, is much more deadly and it's much easier to transmit. Uh, but there are just so many similarities. Right. Well, it was tough living in big cities at those times because, again, you didn't know how it was spread and everybody was in fear of their friends. They didn't want to give each other HIV AIDS, but yeah. but also your job was also at risk. And and out of that came so many laws protecting people. And I have to tell you, we're, we're lucky in the state of California is there's so many laws. I, I believe somebody said there was like 85 laws on the books protecting LGBTQ people. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first one, which decriminalized homosexuality, was 1977, written by Willie Brown uh, and signed by Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, and those are two of my heroes on this issue, I'll tell you. Yeah. So so much legislation came out of San Francisco just protecting, you know, yeah. and, and supporting corporations that supported LGBTQ oh, yeah. issues. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. I, I think one of the biggest was the city of San Francisco with the airport said that anybody who is doing business at the airport, including all the airlines, had to offer domestic partners for their um, employee. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, Mayor Dianne Feinstein, her AIDS budget for the city of San Francisco in 1986 was bigger than President Reagan's AIDS budget was for the entire nation. Wow. So that shows you the, where the priorities were. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Dianne Feinstein's done a lot. You know, I think she's about at the point where she's going to retire, but um, would, she's yeah. done a lot for the mm -hmm. community. Yeah, yeah, she has. And she's somebody who has evolved. You know, a lot of uh, people have evolved on gay rights and on, on same-sex marriage. I mean, Barack Obama had opposed same-sex marriage at one point. Uh, and then, but then he backed it when it came before uh, the Supreme Court. You know, he made sure the Justice Department backed our, our winning side. Uh, people evolve on this issue. Times change, people change. Um, I mean, it come, it's what you were talking about, Jeff, a, a lot of it is... When people come out, it makes a difference. Um, I remember uh, when, when when gay marriage uh, was approved by the California Supreme Court, the Chief Justice, Ron George, who's a Republican, uh, he said what changed his mind was there's a gay couple in his apartment building. And he got to know them. They were human beings. They were really nice people. And it opened his eyes. It's something as simple as that change the mind of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah. We've got about a minute left. Any final thoughts to our listeners? Uh, I'm just uh, really honored to uh, talk with you, Jeff. I mean, you're a smart guy. I've, I've known you a long time. I love seeing you around town, and, and I'm really just very flattered. And, you know, you're keeping the torch going, Jeff, doing a show like this. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really proud of you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. I really appreciate that. If people want to find out more about you, what would be a good resource for them to go to? Uh, they can Google my name and, and uh, you'll see some, there's some YouTube videos of my work, that kind of thing. It'll pop up. And, and, uh, and yeah. for all of our listeners, make sure you check out 5B on Amazon Prime. Thank you, Hank. We really appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. We'd love to have you on again. You've been listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. For all the programming on iHub, go to 
iHubRadio.com.